Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sustainable Finance Podcast, where you can learn everything you need to know about sustainable and ESG investing from leaders in the field. My name is Paul Ellis, and I'm your host for these programs about developments in this fast-growing industry. HL Ventures is dedicated to building high-growth businesses that add value to society by protecting and promoting people and the planet, with a strong preference for our diverse founding teams. The firm's proprietary daily active engagement model blends the best of venture studio and investment firm on one platform to help grow companies from early stage to exit with no upfront cash investment and seed round funding that meets minimum market terms. Oliver Libby, who co-founded HL Ventures in 2009, is my podcast guest today and has dedicated his firm to creating impact through a hands-on approach to business modeling for early-stage private companies. Hello, Oliver, and welcome to the Sustainable Finance Podcast. I'm delighted to join you. Thank you for that wonderful introduction, and I'm looking forward to our conversation today. Well, good. So we're going to jump right into the questions that we want to discuss, and let's begin our conversation today with your perspective on development of impact investing since you co-founded HL Ventures in 2009. And let's bring it up all the way through 2021, if that's okay with you. What major trends have you and other impact investment firms launched during this period of time, and how is all of that going? You know, it's been a fascinating road. Uh, we, I think we can consider ourselves one of the, the you know, original uh, cohort of uh, impact-focused investors. Uh, and, you know, one of the things I've noticed, by the way, is the terminology has, uh, you know, gone through an interesting evolution over the years. Uh, but uh, uh, we, we think very much and have for 14 years about impact investing as adding an additional lens on top of good basic investment uh, principles. Um, so, for example, when we think about underwriting a, a uh, an investment, we're using a lot of the same principles that just a traditional venture capital investor would use. We're looking for high growth. We're looking for financial returns. Unapologetically, this is not a nonprofit. But we overlay on top of that a lens for impact um, and also a very strong interest in underrepresented founders and diverse leadership teams. And I say that not just because I think that those are laudable and things that help me sleep well at night, but also because we think that these now drive investment returns. I will tell you to your question, one of the things that has really changed over time is we spent a lot of our day defending the idea of uh, non-concessionary returns in the early days. So in 2009, 10, 11, the idea was, so explain to the, this is some sort of foundation, uh, a program-related investment vehicle, or are you a charity that might make some returns to reinvest in your own program? What are you doing really? Um, that has dramatically changed. It is now, um, while still a minority, uh, quite well accepted that impact investing can drive market returns or perhaps even better than market returns So when done well. Uh, and, and that's been a huge difference. My, my joke a little bit has been that we've been at this for 14 years and, uh, you know, kind of 10, 10 or 11 of them were unpopular and lonely and the last two or three have been much more interesting in terms of public recognition of the work. Um, the other thing that we've seen is, look, you know, there's been an enormous movement towards uh, what what the public markets would refer to as ESG style investing. You know, people estimate up to a third of the investment dollars in the world are now being managed at least with an eye towards ESG. That's great. Um, 
it feels a little bit like some of that is has, has a little bit um, uh, of needs a little bit more depth to it. Let's say uh, um, maybe they're doing a little bit of box checking, but the trend is very clear. And then the other thing that I'll say is uh, we work with a lot of family offices, family offices, very frequently back venture firms and the next generation, the younger investors around the boardroom table of the family offices are genuinely pushing their families towards impact, towards diversity, towards the very things that we care about. So overarching, um, I don't want to monologue here, so I, I want to wrap up my answer, but overarching, we've really seen a lot of positive trends. Is there greenwashing and impact washing that we have to watch out for? Sure. Do we want every single dollar in the future to take into account impact and diversity? We would love that. Um, but it's been really more or less a trajectory of improvement, of more capital available, of more accepting uh, uh, of our uh, strategy by LPs, by the press, by even entrepreneurs. Uh, and so it's it's been in the main a very good story. That's terrific. So I'm really glad you're at the point you are today because that gives us a good opportunity to focus at a more granular level about your daily active ma engagement model that helps to grow the companies that your firm chooses for investment. Tell our listeners a little bit about that model, how it, it functions and how you put it together over, the, over time. Uh, well, I'm so glad you asked, because if if anyone were to ask me what really differentiates HL Ventures and our ecosystem for company building from a lot of the other venture firms out there, which, by the way, we enjoy working with and we cast no aspersions, but um, the, the big point of differentiation is how seriously we take being hands-on. We call it daily active engagement. It's not like we're sitting there making sure that, you know, this tomorrow, Tuesday, we talk to every single founder. But the idea is experientially, if you're an investee of our firm, you're going to be interacting with our team almost every day. It's going to be from a place of support and, and positivity, although we're there for the crises and we're there to provide tough love where necessary, but we're not trying to run the company for the founders. We're not trying to take things over uh, or be an obstacle. The idea is to, as they would say in sports terms, flood the zone with as many resources as possible. You know, there's a longstanding debate, Paul, in terms of the, the venture industry, especially in terms of how much help you should provide founders. You know, the received wisdom, one of the core mythologies of the space is, um, you know, if you find a unicorn entrepreneur, leave them alone, let them do their unicorn thing. The more you get involved, the more you're kind of killing the magic. I just think that that's ridiculous. I thought that's ridiculous from day one. Um, you know, I analogize this to climbing Mount Everest. You could have the best climber of all time uh, decide that that she or he wants to mount an expedition. You're probably though going to hire Sherpas because they've been up the mountain a bunch of times and they know where the ropes are and where the extra oxygen tanks are. Why would you not want that help? And it takes nothing away from the achievement of summiting a great mountain or exiting a great startup to have had help from people uh, for whom it is not their first seed round or first series A or first employee that has to be hired or fired. So uh, the hands-on nature of what we do is critically important. Now, um, I, I want to draw this back to your original question, which is, sure. you know, in terms of what's changed. Um, one of the things we've seen in the impact-oriented venture firms is there are other uh, structural dynamics in the space that then move as well. And so we find, for example, when you're working with underrepresented founders that are doing impactful things, 
that being more hands-on and more present for them is helpful. You're lowering the drawbridge into a set of resources that you know, have traditionally been available only to a very small homogenous group of people. Um, and so there's a sense that if you're going to do impact and diversity as an investment thesis, you should join that with a more hands-on supportive framework, which is what we've seen. And so the last thing I'll say is we're structured a little bit differently than your average venture firm. We have a holding company. Our venture funds are held within that. And so at the holding company level, we employ a full and part-time, a larger team than you might imagine, um, and uh, certainly for our AUM. Um, and that team is mostly focused on supporting the portfolio companies. So, you know, nine out of 10 people running around the HL hallway, virtual hallway, uh, are focused on all the things we do for the portfolio companies, not on the upfront of the right. You know, Oliver, you raise a, a, what I think is really a, a crucial point for the future of uh, sustainable and impact vesting in general, and that is the, the focus on collaborative work. Uh, it's so important as these parts of our investment industry really become mainstream. And so I'd like to uh, follow up your answer to that question uh, to talk about a major topic of debate and impact investing infrastructure building today and that's the interface between corporate regulatory policy and climate innovation technology. Uh, what is HL Ventures looking for to identify the future leaders that you want to be invested in around this interface? Well, I think it's a really important question. And and look, I think, again, the general direction, the, the, the trend of history is a good one right now for, for example, sustainability or climate-related investments, especially because most corporations and many government actors are moving in the direction of taking this more seriously. In fact, you may have noted that the Securities and Exchange Commission is um, is probably going to promulgate some pretty serious uh, um, bars uh, of holding ESG reporting to a higher level, which is great because ESG reporting has, I mean, in my view, been you know, kind of a little loosey-goosey up till now. You can kind of pick your own criteria and you can measure or not measure. It doesn't really matter, but you can always slap an ESG moniker on your latest vehicle and then you're getting the benefit of, of, of the doubt from a lot of people. So a little more rigor would be great. Uh, in the same vein, a lot of corporations have put forward very big carbon reduction goals or certain kinds of sustainable behavior uh, targets for their employees. Um, what we're looking for in the startups is startups who are going to make that easier. Um, so, you know, we we have, and you may see in our portfolio, a lot of startups that uh, enable things like energy efficiency or using sustainable materials uh, or uh, financing these things in, in affordable ways, which make it easier for companies on a B2B basis to inboard those uh, those solutions, and it helps them uh, make sure that they're hitting their corporate and for employee by employee, their employee targets as well. So I think the idea is, um, I take at face value the fact that corporations and governments are serious about taking action, some more, some less, but let's just say, great, let's arm these actors then with the tools they need to achieve these very ambitious and very important goals. Okay, so now the companies in HL's portfolio, as you've already said, are creating breakthrough solutions in areas like decarbonization, global warming issues, pollution, and clean water and energy. Tell us about the entrepreneurs who launch these firms and how HL Ventures finds them. Sure. Uh, well, the how we find them is the easiest part of that, which is we have a, a larger than average team and a wonderful group of friends and co-investors and frankly, founders that evangelize for us. And so 
almost every investment we've made, even though we're evaluating literally thousands of companies a year, those are largely coming through either active partnerships or one-to-one introductions. Um, We sometimes get cold inbound and we take it seriously, but the vast majority of successful companies that come through our process are coming in through an introduction by one of our team members, by another founder in our portfolio, or by one of our co-investors that's sharing deal flow with us, which we do very frequently. In fact, as a note, I will say venture capital and particularly impact-focused VC um, tend to be very collaborative. So we're constantly sharing deals back and forth, inviting each other into syndicates. Um, one of the things about venture firms that focus on impact is that we tend to be a little smaller than our uh, more traditional brethren. And so that means a lot more collaboration on closing financings where we can all get together and add capital to a pool. Um, so that happens quite frequently. Um, so, so look, I, I think, you know, uh, that's one thing in terms of the founders, you know, one of our core missions is, is to work with underrepresented founders. And, right. and again, I, I want to say, you know, that's something that I feel good about and I'm proud of, but it's also part of an investment thesis. Uh, I think a lot of academic studies demonstrate that diverse teams outperform homogenous teams for one, but the other thing is, and this goes to the heart of your question, uh, teams with different life experiences see problems in different ways. So, for example, you might look at Donnell Baird, who's the founder of Block Power, which is yeah. one of our uh, companies in, in our uh, Opportunity Fund Congratulations. portfolio. Congratulations. That's a great company. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. And look, I think you know, as, as you're clearly familiar with their story, Donnell wouldn't have come up with what is now, we think, a very scalable model if he hadn't grown up in a community where he understood that um, you could do community-based energy efficiency upgrades, starting with things like uh, community centers, churches, and and other uh, kind of uh, uh, beacon uh, shared value uh, buildings within the community. And that's something that I, you know, I'm not sure I would have come up with. And so again, it's, it's about that diversity of experience that then gets you into very clever solutions. The last thing I'll tell you um, is one of the things, you're right that we look for breakthrough innovations, but not everything is like a brand new technology or a brand new piece of science. Some of it is methodological, right? So one of the things, for example, that differentiates Sealed, which is one of our other companies in the energy efficiency space is Sealed has no core technology in terms of energy efficiency. Their core ability is to do a broad audit of a single family home, understand what of a solutions agnostic pool of solutions they can bring to the table, and then provide the financing. And as you recall from the solar industry, sometimes it's the financing strategies that break open the ability to deploy new technology. So that was their breakthrough. So I'm just saying that I think when you're looking at sustainability at climate, sometimes the breakthrough isn't a new type of solar panel. Sometimes it is but it's wherever the breakthrough allows you to reach scale, which we're interested in. You know, that's a very good example that you've given. I recently spoke with our Harold Overholm, who's the CEO of a firm in the Nordics in general. And what he did was he spent 10 years in the United States studying the way that we financed clean energy development. And now he's building it out for many companies in the Nordics after taking all of that education from his experience here in the U.S. And I want to piggyback on that, on your answer also to say, in the current environment, just in general, uh, of finance and financing uh, new entrepreneurs, how many of the companies that you are working with, or let's just say in general, uh, do you see a lot of opportunity for those companies to ultimately end up being part of a larger corporation, for example? In other words, having a technology or or creating a um, 
uh, a survey for family homes like, uh, I can't remember the name of your firm now, the firm now, but even so, doing something that would probably be additive to what another company is already providing in terms of systems control or systems development within the infrastructure of a family home. For sure. You look, I think one of the other things that we've really, I mean, look, I, I spend a lot of my time kind of myth exploding, if you will. And, um, you know, another favorite trope in the venture capital industry is that, you know, the, the you know, you want a unicorn and you want it to go public. Okay. Well, by the way, no complaints. And I suspect we do have, we've had some IPOs, thankfully, in, in our past as a company, those are great. But I am equally pleased. It, it's all about context, right? So, I'm equally pleased with a company at which we entered at a fair valuation with a meaningful amount of money being sold to a corporate strategic or financial buyer um, in a deal that returns uh, capital to our investors and provides a return, right? And so it's it's not that so many of these companies are held to a singular storyline or standard, and that doesn't really help. There are there absolutely are companies in our portfolio that very sensibly could find a home in a large corporate or even in a private equity roll-up, and that would be a great financial outcome for our investors and a great outcome for those founders, and frankly, a really powerful addition for those corporates or those private equity firms. So um, my point is that there's so, again, um, there's so many ways in which we can achieve successful outcomes here that add value and add value to society as well. It's not just one type of exit that makes sense. Great. Well, thank you for expanding on that, uh, Oliver. I really appreciate it. Now, also today, there's a growing number of experts uh, uh, in sustainable and impact investing who believe that the mega trends in this industry will mature in the private market capital space first before they mature in the public space. Uh, so I'd like to get your take on that. And does it really matter who gets there first? You know, first of all, I'm not sure it does, but I will say, um, obviously, there's a lot of private capital flowing these days, but the public markets are still, you know, massive, right? I, I suspect, and let me say, I, I will always try and share with you and, and, and your uh, podcast subscribers uh, fairly where I see myself as an expert and where I don't. This is not an area where I see myself as an expert, but I suspect something, which is to say that when we get to a critical point, where investors are demanding certain kinds of impact criteria, that it will be easier for publicly traded companies to add those criteria to what are already very broad-based types of reporting that they do that cross-compare different kinds of companies on widely accepted forms of reporting than it will be for private companies that are generally more chaotic in their reporting of various kinds. They may or may not have audited financials even. So at the time, so it, a lot of the innovation may happen in the private side. But when that tipping point happens where investors are just demanding that ESG and impact criteria and diversity uh, be done in a very broad and scalable way, uh, the public markets will find it easier to drive those norms across the entire base of all publicly traded assets. That's great. I, I really appreciate that perspective, and it's one that I haven't heard. I ask a lot of, of, of people this question on an ongoing basis, so thanks for your input now. Sometimes Oliver. lack of expertise is powerful. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm very glad to have, uh, again, my my whole effort with the, with the podcast programs is a, a collaborative environment as well. So I'm always looking for the perspective that nobody else has shared yet, and I, and I appreciate your offering it. Now, listen, uh, we're 
coming close to the end of the program today. And so what I'd like to do is ask you to tell our listeners where online they can find more information about HL Ventures. And just as importantly, how can they get in touch with you and your team at HL Ventures about the topics that we've been discussing on today's program? Wonderful. Well, first of all, I have to say thank you. Thank you for sharing your time and your audience with me. I hope that what we've discussed today can be of help. Uh, and I'm grateful to you anytime we can surface these very important topics. You know, as I mentioned, when my very first answer, it was a fairly lonely uh, and uh, and cold uh, outhouse uh, for the first decade of our firm's history that we were in. Um, and, and the light has only started to shine uh, in terms of attention. And, uh, and so uh, programs like this are critically important. If folks want to learn more about us, we have a one-stop shop website, which has pretty deep information. It's simply www.h-l.vc. Very simple. Lots of information there, lots of ways to get in contact with us, which is probably the simplest way to do it. Of course, I'm always happy to connect with folks on LinkedIn. I'm easy to find, just Oliver Libby. Um, but the website really has, it has pipelines for submitting decks. It has talent network associated with it. So there's lots of functionality there. And we certainly welcome you all to uh, come join us there. Great. Well, Oliver, if you have any links that you'd like to supply us with to post as an attachment to this program, uh, we'd really appreciate that. Uh, we, that way people can have find directly, they can go directly to things that you might perceive as, as critically important or, or some of the really exciting ideas and technologies that you're working with within your portfolios. So thanks a lot for your time today, Oliver Libby, co-founder and managing director of HL Ventures. And to our listeners, join us again next week for another episode. I'm Paul Ellis, your host for the Sustainable Finance Podcast. 